The Lifestyle Show on RTE Radio 1 Extra. Welcome to The Lifestyle Show on RTE Radio 1 Extra with me, Tara Lockery-Grant. This is the programme where we interview amazing people that we are lucky enough to feature on rte.ie forward slash lifestyle and also in the lifestyle section of RTE News Now app. Now, one of my favourite interviews so far this year was with a woman who's sitting opposite me right now because it was inspirational, it was honest, and it was one of those, afterwards, one of those moments where you realise, I need to get up, I need to do more, I need to do it with a smile on my face and knowing that there are great women who are paving the way. Since then, Nora Casey went on to do an interview in The Late Late that blew the country's mind. And anyone who has been through or experienced domestic violence, as she described it on the programme, absolutely could relate to her on the day. And now Nora is getting ready to do the Women of the Year Awards and thankfully made time to come and talk to us again. Nora, so good to have you back in here. Thank you so much. Grab that mic there and pull it in towards yourself because I'm not nope. missing a minute of this. Uh, by the way, no pressure with that build up. <laughs> yeah. Listen, um, I went along as well to Planet um, Women and it, it, it was in the RDS. It was an absolutely wonderful event so can we go backwards a little bit before we go forwards and you spoke about your family history and it was just I didn't know so much about you I mean I've since read the book literally but um, I, there were so many things that I had read about you getting ready for the interview but there were so many things that anyone listening to the podcast and I'm going to link it into this piece so for anyone who missed it you can listen to it again but it was just I think your get up and go how self-educated you are how much you went through with your family and your amazing parents and then to get to where you are now okay so that was really the first thing then you went on the late late can you tell us what happened in the interim what made you go I need to do this and that's a really good question because I've actually gone back over time and said firstly I have to say that that was buried so deep inside me I almost had convinced myself it had happened to somebody else. It was nine years. It wasn't something that happened over the space of a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I'm just saying that when I finally did get out of that relationship, uh, Richard always said to me, you should never deny it because it made you who you are um, mm-hmm. and it has defined me but I just and, and Richard for anybody who, who sorry, doesn't my late husband <laughs> yes lovely lovely man because again for anybody who only got half of the story he sounded your, your Richard sounded like such a beautiful man and you had a great many great years and times yes. together so this was your uh, relationship before and I think when you get a terrible one um, I thank the Lord that I then got a really lovely one and Richard it was a balance for me in my life so to go back to your question, I, I had buried it really far inside me. And, and after I left um, Peter, who was my first husband, I lived in abject fear that I would meet him. Like I would spend all my time imagining I saw him in crowds and he had turned into this huge, big, monstrous ogre that I was fearful of and couldn't even in my mind go back there to think about things that had happened. So I, I kind of couldn't believe about a year ago I started to obsess a little about it. Maybe you just described Planet Woman. I've spent my whole life saying we should be honest about our life experiences, that the only way that young people can learn from us is if we tell the truth, that we don't say I just suddenly got plonked into the position of CEO and it was really easy. We need to go back over our lives and try and help people to understand how to find the ladder to get up it rather than, you know, assume that they've got on it. So I'm sitting in front of women and men all the time asking them, you know, be honest with me. And and I myself am being a bit of a fraud. That's what I felt that for nine years of my life, something huge, um, 
something that absolutely defined me, that created the person that I am today. I had never spoken about it, I never admitted it. Most of my close friends don't know anything about it. In fact, members of my family, before I decided to speak, didn't know anything about it. Um, so it was a big thing, but it was inside me. And in order to get rid of it, I started writing about it, not to publish it, but just to get it out of my head. And then every day, it seemed like the whole universe was reminding me. There were these stories coming up all the time of women in courts and people who were fearful for themselves and their children. So it was constantly reinforcing in my mind domestic violence, domestic abuse. It's a huge issue. You're not talking about it. You're able to talk about it now because he's dead. Um, so as time went on, I thought about it. I I think that, you know, if you ask the people on The Late Late Show, the the producer, I, in, as it got closer to the time, I would wake up every morning and phone him and say, I'm not doing it. Wow. I just can't do it. And every evening I would say, I'll do it. I'd calm myself during the day. And that was it, even in the live week. Did you know? And the day before he had a stand in. So I, I really was, you know, terrified of actually whether I could do it. Whether people, as it got closer, I began to think, oh, my goodness, people are going to judge me. Um, all the things that I feel about myself, you know, why did I stay? What kind of a doormat am I? You know, people see me maybe as somebody with the personality of Dragon's Den or being formidable and, you know, having the respect of everything I've done. Would I just be knocking all that down? And they'd say, well, she couldn't even stand up to that man for nine years. I, I had all sorts of different things in my head and the only touchstone I had was talking to my brothers perhaps you know my mum knew and in the live week before I spoke I spoke to my two brothers and um, it was very difficult you know cathartic very difficult um, a lot of people afterwards asked me whether Dara was upset about it Dara's my son yes. he's now 18 the interesting thing is after Richard died um, Dara had heard myself and Richard talking about it and, and one big thing in Dara's life was telling the truth. Um, when Richard got diagnosed, we didn't know he was going to die. And Dara felt all along that, you know, he wanted the truth and he didn't want anything to be, um, you know, whitewashed. And so after he died, he said, I heard you and dad talking once about your first husband. I never knew you were married before. Tell me what happened. I know that it was bad. So I told him and that's like Richard's anniversary is tomorrow. So it's six, six years ago, the oh. guts of six years ago. So we it was a difficult couple of months and we talked about it honestly quite a few times. So way before I ever even started to talk to the late late, I asked Dara how he felt. I'd never do anything in my life that would damage my boy. Never. No. And he increasingly kept saying, listen, mum, you should do it. By the time I'd asked him for the umpteen time, he said, if you ask me one more time, should you do something that desperately needs to be done and you're in a position to try and help people? Absolutely, you should do it. Well you know? done, Dara. Mm. So I think um, there wasn't one big moment. Um, ironically, I was watching that, you know, Hollywood show Big Little Lies. Yes. And I had one evening sat down and said a little bit of, you know, brain candy, chewing gum, watch this. And I was surprised how caught up I got in the Nicole Kidman story. And that kind of behaviour that she was going through was, I, could, I had echoes of it in my mind that, you know, I was sitting in front of somebody saying, sure, it happens in all marriages. He's a lovely man. He's my best friend. Um, constantly making excuses and, and in part blaming myself as to why I would allow him to, you know, I said something at the wrong time. That's why he slapped me. Jesus. You know, I did completely the wrong thing. That's why he beat me up, you know. So I was constantly second guessing myself and 
one of the only people I ever told after I left him, um, a, a very good work colleague that I felt I was reasonably close to. When you're in an abusive relationship, you tend to be distant from everybody, including I was quite far away from my family. Because you're hiding everything the whole yeah. time. Yeah. And I said to her, um, I, you know, I've left him and she knew him. You know, we'd we'd been out on occasions together with her partner and and she said, why, why have you left him? And I told her a little bit about what had happened and how he had beaten me up and, you know, the difficulties of what was happening behind the closed door. And her reaction was immediately, what on earth did you stay with him for? Huh. I mean, what's wrong with you? If any man lifted a hand to me, I'd be straight out the door. And why did you stay there? I felt belittled by it. Then looking back over my own behaviour, thinking she's right. I What kind of a, you know, I go no. back to the fact that it's it's kind of a double abuse in a way because not only are you going through it but afterwards you're plagued with the idea that it was you and you know not helped by a lot of time in society people say no, there's a judgment, pair of them no. yeah there's a pair of the men out you know there's two sides to every marriage there's just it's taken me quite a while to accept that actually sometimes there's not two sides yes that when somebody uses physical violence um, it's never okay it's ever. never okay no um, I think the you are never to blame when there's physical exactly. violence and, and I've been surprised I think I did it not thinking about what the aftermath would be. Not at all. I was just constantly thinking, could I actually get through that moment? Could I actually talk about it? And I know I wasn't as articulate as I would have wanted to be. I was very upset talking about it because if you don't, there's one thing when something terrible happens to you, it's quite hard to relive it. And then over time, you talk about it so much, it becomes okay. But that was the first time I'd really spoken about it. No, it's still raw. I watch you in the late, okay, having sat this close to you only a little while before that I'm looking at you now. And when you're talking about it, your heart, you cross your hand across your heart. Mm, I know. You're protecting. It's amazing what you did. You can't underestimate what you've done for women, for us who have any of us, of of, of women across the country, anyone who heard it across the world, who has gone through anything similar to, to see someone who we admire in public life coming forward in openness and to your son as well for enabling you to do that and encouraging you to do it and for you to do it. It was hard. I think I would say it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life outside of leaving him, I guess, um, which was the big moment in my life. How did you do it? I, I, you know, what's obsessing me now is not why do you stay, but how do you leave? And I got so many hundreds and hundreds of messages from women um, and some from men, but uh, mainly from women who have also left. And what I'd love to do now is actually get all of us in a room and talk about how we all left. I, for me, he he beat me up really badly one evening and it was, you know, broken ribs. I have a, I can't sort of lift my lips on the left hand side. Um, so he broke bones on my face and I, I found it very hard to get over that and to accept that he was apologetic as he always was and he would never do it again. And I was conscious that less than four weeks later, where he was back into the same passionate behaviour, almost blaming me for my injuries. I needed to go back to the doctor a second time. Oh, you're making a big deal out of this. You're never going to. You're going to keep going on about this for the rest of your life. And then my parents came over. And, and bear in mind that for he was unravelling that final year. And every weekend I would go home on Friday from work and I'd say this weekend I'm going to leave him. And I would literally be in floods of tears first thing Monday morning going back in, not having done it. But I did have various attempts. So, you know, one time I tried to sit down reasonably and explain to him how I couldn't stay in the relationship. And he'd been shouting at me the night before in front of some work colleagues. And, you know, 
how lovely it was to have Richard when I walked in anywhere. You know, he was just absolutely brilliant with everybody and you could completely relax when I walked in anywhere with Peter. He was aggressive. He could be violent. He was argumentative. I was always on edge. And this particular night he'd made a show of me in front of my work colleagues and I said, you know, maybe enough's enough. And he got really aggressive. So I went out to the car and I drove around the block about, you know, for an hour. When I came back, all my clothes were thrown out the window and they were strewn all over the driveway. And I went in to say, that's it. And he was on the floor, bawling his eyes out and begging me not to go and that he would not be able to live. He would take his own life if I left. And um, so... When I say I tried to go, many, many times I tried to go and it had always ended in tragic circumstances. So I got to the point where I knew that I was in the end game and my mum and dad were over and he was, um, he slapped me basically while they were in the same place as me and he hid himself from them. And my father said, what's wrong with your face? It's bright red. And he said, oh, that was a reaction to the fish she had at lunchtime. And he walked away as casually as though I'm OK with, you know, in front of my mum and dad being in the same place. And I, it was that moment I just said to myself, you're never going to do that to me again, Cooking. ever. I'm never going to allow it. Now, it took me another few months to pick up the courage. I told my mum, I, I don't understand the bystander campaign that's running because most people in domestic violence that I talk to, they don't tell other people. And um, it's dangerous for people to get involved mm-hmm. if they don't. Sometimes they're good meaning, but they can actually increase the risks that you have of violence. So mm-hmm. for me, the pivotal moment was I went home to Ireland and I told my mum. And I knew that if I told her I had to leave, you couldn't tell your mother something like that and then stay. She was totally shocked. We both agreed not to tell my dad, who adored my first husband, by the way, and um, didn't know anything about what was happening. And I went back to London and it took me five or six days. We got to Friday. I woke up at four o'clock and I took a shower and I packed the smallest bag on the planet and I woke him up and said, I'm leaving you. And he started to laugh and said, yeah, 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 I've heard that one before. And I said, no, seriously, I am leaving you. I'm never coming back. And he turned over and he fell back asleep again. And I drove off and I felt like I was driving over a cliff and everything in my life I'd just left behind and you know, the safety of my beautiful house and everything in it, just a small bag, that's all I had. I had no security. Um, I went into work because I couldn't allow people to know that this was happening and I stayed in an Ibis in Heathrow Airport, which is the weirdest thing, to live in London and drive out to Heathrow Airport (laughs) to stay in a hotel, but it was the cheapest one I could find and I sat in that airport thinking about my lovely home and how within a nanosecond I could just drive back there and pretend it was all a joke and... And I didn't. I sat on the floor and even though it was the most terrifying feeling, being all on your own in the middle of a hotel full of anonymous people, I also felt I was free and I kind of knew I wouldn't go back. I I knew that regardless as to what happened next, and a lot of things happened, um, to try and persuade me to go back that I wouldn't and I slept on people's sofas and spare bedrooms and sofa served, did everything that I could to try and avoid, I didn't have money, you know to try and avoid going back at that stage in your life okay we we know you now to be the successful businesswoman that you are at that stage what what was your life looking like oh tremendously successful work-wise and I when I say you know somebody asked me once when Richard died I was working like all hours and taking on 10 or 12 jobs it's my default position so I met Peter when I was 23 
and I left him when I was 32. So um, during that period, I actually had left nursing. I was kind of fresh out of nursing. I went into journalism and studied that and then got myself a job as a news reporter. In At night time, I did two years at Ealing College to do television production. I was during the day trying to squeeze in radio journalism with um, the BBC and Hull. Um, I then got fairly rapidly up to news editor, editor, editorial director, took myself to do an MPhil at the University of Wales. Um, in my spare time, I did shifts at Sky and I did two programmes with LBC. And then I went to Ashridge Management <laughs> College when I was 29 and studied strategic management, um, all the while holding down a full time job. And I became CEO uh, just before my 30th birthday. So when you look at that, you might imagine, you know, the 20s are all about fun. Well, no, <laughs> For me, I, it was all about escape. And yeah. I, you know, in a way, it, it's the weirdest thing. Like I've been trying to think. Would I be anybody if it wasn't for the fact that that terrible home life was something I was escaping? I was filling every bit of my brain with things that were keeping me energised out of the home, away from all of the terrible things that were happening to me. Like, I like to think that I inherently had that drive and ambition, but I do know that that complete workaholic tendency I have to try and do 50,000 things at once was all born at that time. I think Richard with that beautiful thing that he said to you which you know picking the positive and the and the love filled angle from what could have been a hate and bitter angle which he and his love didn't it seem let you go to that line that he said to you is everything that you've done has made you who you are exactly. and he loved you for who you are yeah. and you felt blessed having that relationship after the horror of of the relationship with Peter. It's so true Tara. When he said that to me, the reason I repeated it is I remember it so well because I felt so bad and really felt that I was, you know, the only thing I can say, very diminished by the whole thing, fearful, a coward, afraid. I was still afraid, very afraid when I met Richard. And um, and when he said that, I just understood that all the bad things that happened to you can actually shape you as much as all the good things. And even though... I would airbrush those nine years out and I did successfully until recently. Um, They actually do contribute to who I am, you know, to every part of me. And I don't like to think about it, but it's true. By sharing it. This is the reason, you know, just talking to people to remind them of this. Women of the Year Awards. Good God. (laughs) Seriously. Can the organiser get the award? Um, And this award, I know you have categories of awards that we're going to get into, but no, really, it's like, what a year. And I, I, I do think... You know, just just to swear from where I was talking to you about. So when I came back here first in 2000, we're on our 17th year. I I said, does anybody in Ireland do Women of the Year Awards? And they all laughed and said, no, we don't have enough women. And <laughs> I, I think because of what had happened to me, I felt very strongly that we should be holding up women who do really well. and yeah. We should let young women know they could be like that. I think I've said many times when I was growing up, I didn't know what a businesswoman was yes. because I'd never met one. And I had no role models to imagine uh, myself being a kind of a, an entrepreneur or a businesswoman. It just wasn't there. It didn't happen. Um, the television was full of men. The newspaper was full of men. So I think for me, it was one of those sort of moments when I thought I, I could do this. I, it was quite a small event. Mm-hmm. Mo Molum, myself and um, and Marion Finucane co-compared yes. it. And Mo Molum won a, one of the awards. And I'd known oh, her in Mo the UK. Mo and she, she was fantastic. She took the house down. There was only five award <laughs> winners that year, but it was really amazing. And Mary McAleese won the overall award. And then the second year it got bigger. And Mary, sorry, Mary Robinson won the first year. Mary McAleese won the second <laughs> year. Um, so... 
uh, I pretty good. I, I had to get rid of the two, you know, presidents, <laughs> the two women presidents. But you know, in that time, I remember and um, Edna O'Brien yes. coming to the stage, and she cried her eyes out and said, "Nobody in Ireland has ever given me an award before this." Mm. And there were those kind of moments where I, you know, Maureen O'Hara, who yes. who came, and I'd had many conversations with her and her minder, and you know, she would only come for five minutes, and she would just make an appearance, and she talked for forty-five minutes, and and. <laughs> What was it like? Everyone remembers it because everyone had given her a standing ovation and she came up onto the podium, held both sides and they were all still standing thinking she would say two words. And she and while they were all standing, she talked for 45 minutes. Wow. She told them all about her Irish passport, how much they it meant They did to not. Her. They were still just visualised that all for a second. She was such a beautiful lady. Oh, yeah. She was incredible. So Inside and out, her yeah. feistiness and her twinkle. She I would love to have heard that speech. And, uh, you know, um, I took her back to bed that night. She was staying in uh, what was the Four Seasons and she, um, <laughs> on the way, uh, she talked to everybody. It took us, I'd say, at least an hour to get up to the bedroom because she went into the kitchens. She had to say hello to the chef. She went off to talk to the man who was opening the door for people. <laughs> she was absolutely brilliant. Um, I think you know, when I think about it now, the first year I was on radio all the time and they were going, ha ha ha, or next thing there'll be a Man of the Year awards and why are you doing these women? It was definitely the sense of, you know, it's stupid, it's a silly idea. And I was trying to say, look, it's it's as much about rewarding people who've done really well as it is about holding up people as role models. Yes. And, you know, I've always felt that if young women in particular could see how how these women became the success they were, that they would understand how to get there too. Brilliant. And it wouldn't be beyond their reach to try and achieve Nor that. in the times we're talking about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Is it not more important than ever that we have awards like this? Totally. And I think that when women talk honestly, I've just been talking, you know, I think that's the testimony we leave behind. I, I firmly believe that, you know, it's not that you leave behind money or no, business. It's it's you, you leave behind your testimony. And I grew up in, in Ireland where we never talked about things, you know, like sexual abuse. Um, we didn't talk about incest. We didn't talk about issues around rape. And it was all buried behind closed doors. And the generations that I grew up with weren't comfortable talking about it. So what I like to think of now is that we have a generation that is prepared to speak and to say, honestly, this is how I got there. I can't tell you how many well-known women that I have worked with who have suffered at the hands of a Harvey. We've all met them. Um, there's no way that you can get into any position of influence in your life or your career as a woman without having gone through quite a few of those men. And what can we do? It's it, For that man to have succeeded, there was another big group of powerful men who stood behind him and who allowed him to continue. I've never been in a workplace where people don't know the Harvey. Everybody does and they allow it to continue. And the reason why women don't speak out is their careers are over. Like in in my own case, the first time I was in a hospital with a consultant who everybody knew this man was sexually inappropriate. When you were in theatre, he would lean up against you. He would find any reason to get you while he was dressing out of his scrubs. He would say, come in and I'll go through that nurse Casey with you. And you knew it was because he was undressing in front of you and he was getting a kick out of it. Nobody stood up to him. He was inappropriate to patients, he was inappropriate to the staff, and it was all a collusion by other consultants. If anybody had ever complained, you learned very quickly, you may as well write your P45. You know, your career is vaporised, you're nobody after that. Because powerful people in that position, when they're supported by other powerful people, they, they almost block everybody from taking action.
there's nobody that's going to be brave enough to whistleblow when the entire establishment is backing them. What can we do then, Nora? Well, look, this is good. Yeah, <laughs> What's happening now? Yeah, yeah. At least we're beginning to talk about it. I yeah. mean, we saw shades of this in, in Donald Trump, for yes. instance, where men of a certain generation felt it was their entitlement, that there was no issue about the fact that they were going to use themselves, their sexual prowess, their predatory behaviour to try and um, force young women to behave in a certain way. So, for instance, my first boss in the newsroom, um, he was like that. He, he very much was of the belief that in order for you to work with me, you should come out for drinks with me at night time and I'm going to take a dim view of the fact if you don't. And when he was sexually inappropriate or he was touching you on the back of your neck and he was, you know, just feeling you in ways that you were uncomfortable with. Yeah, you suck it up. You don't say anything because if you do, you're gone. This is why now, as you said, this is good because you know what? It's very important Mm. and he can't hide behind a political wall. And the great thing as well is that the more we talk about it, the more we let those lecherous people acting inappropriately know This could be you. Whatever about him and his heinous and abhorrent behaviour, like I really feel that board deserves to be fired because they allowed him to do that. So it never happens that one individual can behave like that. It takes a big wall of powerful people behind them to allow them to do it. Exactly. And especially if they were involved in those cases of silencing other women. Yeah. Now, not red carpet at the Women of the Year Awards on the 28th of October in the Burlington what colour is it going to be it's and why? Be purple carpet. Uh, well, well October is the month for domestic violence awareness. It's, you know, I have, do you know what happens to people? I hope it happens to people. Well, for me, it does. Life experiences lead me down paths towards wanting to help with particular causes. So hospice was, the hospice foundation, a very important cause to me, cancer. Um, when I came back first, 17 years ago, the Women of the Year Awards, I did them. I did it for Women's Aid. We always have a nominated charity. So I reached out to Women's Aid instinctively and I did it with them. And you know what's terrible is afterwards I felt people might think mm. that there was an association that I had with Women's Aid and I moved to another charity in year two. Now, we always moved charities, so it wasn't a it wasn't a big issue, but I felt that myself. So I thought this year of all years when... I have finally, you know, said everything that I wanted to say. I would like to help other women in my space. And myself and Margaret Martin, who runs Women's Aid, have agreed to try and help young women. It's My whole thing is about Women's Aid is a fantastic charity for women who are fleeing for their life, who are at the end, who are in crisis, who need refuge. If somebody told me before I married Peter that when he slapped me, slapped my head against the side of the car for the first time, that he would continue doing it. I would never have stayed with him. But I was totally naive. I didn't understand how to recognise bad relationships. So what what I'd like to do with Margaret and she and her fabulous organisation are going to do it is we're going to try and fundraise as much as we can and we're going to try and help young women and young men to recognise toxic relationships, to try and understand before it gets to the end that you can actually... Stop it. You can say no. Um, And nobody's in that space. I mean, there are young women as young as 16 in violent relationships in Ireland and they fall through the net. There's also, of course, children who are in families where there's domestic violence. But I'm particularly talking about people going out into the world and not understanding um, the whole concept and the idea behind Um, a positive and and a good relationship. You know, when George Hook um, said those famous things that caused all the controversy, 
Um, such a shame that we didn't continue that conversation and that now all we're talking about is journalists banning journalists. Yes. Um, and somewhere in all of that, we've forgotten the whole conversation we were having. But I, I was writing out a blog about the fact, well, firstly, whatever about George Hook making those comments in our courts, about a third of young women who, who go forward with sexual abuse allegations and rape allegations are faced with a, a virtually entire character assassination. There's a young girl of 14 in our courts. Um, they allowed them to use her Instagram, her Facebook photos of her dabs, of her nights out with her friends to imply that she was a bad moral character and that she didn't have respect for herself and therefore the jury shouldn't have respect for her. That's the conversation we should be having. And when George Hook says, what is it with young girls and, you know, the way they dress and stay out, it's what is it with young men? You know, why why don't we talk about how we raise young men? Because, you know, for a young man to believe that a girl intoxicated is fair game, you know, what is it we're doing about our sons, not yes. our daughters? We need these so conversations. Yes. I, I would love, I would love to try and fundraise for them to be able to tackle that area. You know, I've never come across a woman who said she used to hit me, but he was grand after five years. Yes. It, they just don't stop. And if you got that message out to say zero tolerance in a relationship, you know, the, the thing is about Peter that he was very controlling. He wanted to manage the finances. He managed my passports. He decided where we went. Um, he got jealous really easily. Um, he was quick to anger. He put me down. So, you know, you know, all those things crept up on me. And I, I completely convinced myself that somebody who loved me, you know, he might slap me once, but he'd never do it again. Yeah. You know, that was just an aberration. He was never going to be like that forever because he loved me. I mean, look at how much he was spending. I mean, he was taking me to all these fabulous places and he was quite flamboyant about his wealth. When I returned to Ireland, there'd be flowers. Waiting. My father thought he was the best man on the planet. He thought I'd landed on my feet with the most wonderful man who would send gifts and flowers and, you know, very demonstrable, especially after he had been violent. He would be super demonstrable about his um, his gifts. And Nora, this is why it's key. It's exactly what you're describing there. You became a victim of an abuser and you're an extremely intelligent, hardworking, well-educated, bright woman. It can happen to anybody. Anybody. And that's why the information needs to get out there. That's why the Women of the Year Awards fundraising this year is for Women's Aid is going to be extremely important. And that's why we need to support it. And it's great that, you know, well, firstly, it's a fantastic night. We've got mm. a fabulous fashion show with amazing purple frocks from incredible designers like Helen Cody, one of our winners last year. Um, everybody who arrives, this white ribbon is used for men. So there's a man up campaign for men who support women of Brilliant. domestic violence. So as they come on the purple carpet, they get purple ribbon for, for women and white ribbon for men. Instead of it just being the awards this year, we've asked people like Monica Luckman to do a ballet performance with her troupe. And we've got singers and musicians and we've got spoken word and poets. And we just want it to be a great celebration of women and and people, both women and men, supporting women who go through difficult times, you know. So I love it. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm more excited this year than I've ever been before. Nora, it's been an... I knew it was going to be a pleasure <laughs> to get you back in again. Um, and we're going to have the interview up on rt.e forward slash lifestyle and we'll link back to the previous interview we did with Nora as well. The awards are on, Women of the Year Awards, on October the 28th in the Burlington Hotel. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Lifestyle Show with Tara Lockery-Grant on RTE Radio 1 Extra.